Hello and welcome. My name is Alice and this is the Backtracker History Show podcast, where I ask you to join me on a meander down through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at UK the capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. Now, shall we get on with our story? The story has been told again and again and it has been the subject of many television and radio programmes. There also has been a touch of mystery with stories of a woman in black and two child victims who were never claimed or identified. The disaster unfolded on October 13th, 1928 as the Leeds to Bristol night mail train made its way through the morning fog at about 60 miles per hour. For some reason, never fully explained or understood, the mail train roared past a signal at red and crashed into the 51 wagons goods train at about the first wagon as it was shunting backwards and overturned. Just ten seconds later and the goods train would have been clear. In the Charfield signal box, signalman Henry Button accepted the mail train from the Berkeley Junction and put the signal to red. This should have halted the train until a goods train was off the line. But driver Henry Aldington and his fireman Frank Want read the distant signal as green and continued on their fateful journey. In the last few seconds preceding the crash, driver Henry bent helplessly over the controls. After the train overturned, he found himself up to his armpits in coal from the tender. He had survived the crash unhurt. He heard his fireman Frank calling his name. He dragged himself through a hole in the engine and began to help those trapped until the flames made this impossible. Then he made his way to the Charfield signal box where signalman Henry Button was gazing at the scene of carnage and destruction. What is the meaning of this lot? shouted Aldington. You have the distant signal off. Impossible, replied Button. Aldington now faced the prospect of fighting to save his reputation were living with the knowledge that he had caused the death of 16 people. For 37 years he had served the London, Midland and Scottish Railway well. For the past 13 years he had been a driver with the impeccable record. Could he have mistaken a red light for green? Unfortunately, the mail train was one of the older types, still lit by gas as electricity was only just taking over trains' illuminations. 
and gas cylinders were hung beneath the front coaches. This gas ignited on impact. And the massed wreckage became a funeral pyre within seconds. After the mail train crashed into the goods tender, it ploughed off the line into another goods train, luckily empty but passing on the upline. Fire broke out and men, women and children were trapped in the piled up debris. The mail train landed on its side among the smashed wagons and hot ashes from the firebox spat over the line. Three coaches behind the engine telescoped, falling against the brick bridge immediately above the line. The impact was so great that passenger James Gaston was thrown through the roof of his compartment to land, seriously injured on the bridge road. Minutes later, he was found by villagers. He died in hospital. As this was a night train, the passengers were asleep. Aroused by the noise of the crash and the screaming of the dying and panic-stricken, villagers rushed down to the cutting. What they found were flames leaping from carriage to carriage, where passengers were trapped. Word of the Week And for this week's offering, I give you... Rum Shrub Now, rum shrub, or just called shrub, was a Victorian term for a drink that was made with rum and one or more citrus fruits. Now there's something to start getting you into the Christmas spirit. As you can imagine, many of the passengers were injured, some only slightly, and they were all rushed to hospital. Some bodies, though, were so badly burned that identification was impossible. The force of the impact was so huge that the second coach of the mail train was pushed up on its end until it overlapped the small bridge under which the accident actually happened. The heat was so intense that tar on the road of the bridge melted and the bricks were calcined. For five hours it was impossible to touch the wreckage. Fourteen bodies were initially recovered, but they couldn't actually confirm as some were so small. The fire was caused by gas, which was used to light some of the carriages. Harry Long of Charfield said, Some of the passengers were trapped by their arms and legs and implored us to cut off their limbs to save them from the flames. The day after, Charfield was invaded by thousands of motorists who came from near and far to view the scene and wreckage of the previous day's terrible railway disaster. The death chamber at the nearby railway hotel, about 50 yards from the tragic site, contained the gruesome assortment of human remains, charred beyond recognition. The one exception is that of a woman whose set features wore a smile and whose right arm was fixed rigidly across her face as if in protection. Portions of the body of Jack Johnson of Fishponds, Bristol, the guard of the mail train salvaged from the tangled mass of the wreckage ten hours after the accident, were only identified by the buttons on his uniform. The pub was also used as a hospital. They had large tables and lots of spaces, and also brandy for medical use. 
two days after the accident, and all the doctors could say was that five out of the dead were men and five were women, and it was impossible to ascertain the sex of the remaining bodies. One of the bodies was described as that of a woman of medium build, about 50 years of age with bobbed hair turning grey. She was wearing a blue serge outfit, and that was all they could say. Mrs Irene Walling of Nottingham told an interviewer the following graphic story of her terrible experience. Everything went black when the crash came, and I recovered to find myself pinned under a mass of broken coachwork. My feet were caught, and I could see the flames coming nearer and nearer. I covered my face with my jacket as a protection from the intense heat. I I grew hysterical. I do not know what I did. You cannot realise what it was like, but always the flames were getting nearer. In a last frantic effort to free myself, I do not know how. I shall never know. I crawled to safety through broken glass and woodwork. The coach was at an angle of 45 degrees, with one end resting on the bridge. A man lifted me to the ground and I was brought here. I saw one woman pinned in the debris, shrieking for help. Her case looked hopeless. I am sure she could not get away. She must have perished. Mr Holman Brook recalled a rather tragic story whilst he was in Bristol General Hospital with injuries to his head and back. He had been travelling with his fiancée, Miss Hilda Florence Cross, aged 38, an elocution teacher from Belper. I was travelling with Miss Cross, who was missing. We were very fond of one another and were going to see her mother at Tainmouth for a short holiday. Miss Cross was sleeping on one side of the compartment and I on the other. I was awakened by a horrible scream and then something hit me on the jaw, completely knocked me out. When I came round, I found myself in the open air on top of a pile of wreckage. I could not believe my eyes. It was like Dante's Inferno. That is the only way I could possibly express it. Flames roared on every hand and all I could see beyond them was twisted metal and splintered woodwork. I thought I was still dreaming. I shouted repeatedly and frantically for Miss Cross. There was no reply, but I could hear the moans and wails of trapped passengers on every side. I could only crawl as I was pretty badly injured, but I managed to make my way along the splintered coach and eventually some rescuers found me. The family of Hilda Cross scoured the Bristol hospitals looking for her, but they were unable to identify any of the bodies. As hers. Book of the Week. This week's book is called Death at Hungerford Stairs, 
and it's the second in a series of Charles Dickens and Superintendent Sam Jones books by J.C. Briggs. In this instalment, our two heroes are involved in trying to track down a serial killer who is choosing young boys off the streets as his victims. Now, I like these books because they show very graphically what life was like in that era, from the very rich to the very poor. So that's Death at Hungerford Stairs, set in London, 1849. And now, let's get back to our tale. Perhaps the most poignant story is that told by Louis Huntley, who dislocated his shoulder. He was travelling with his wife and widowed sister, Mrs Johnson, in the second coach. They were returning from a holiday in Leeds to their home in Penzance. He rescued his wife and two screaming girls who were trapped in the next compartment, and then he returned to rescue his sister. I fell into a mass of struggling people. I told my wife to jump, and she did. But my sister was trapped from the waist down, and it was as if she was held in a vice. I heard the cries of trapped women in the next compartment, and was able to free them. I dislocated my shoulder in trying to get her out. It was terrible. I shall never forget it. She was pinned down by her legs, and it drove me mad to see her. I wrenched and pulled at the mass of debris which held her down, but it was hopeless. Hercules himself could not have done it. Then the flames came up over me, and I fell back more dead than alive. I can still hear my sister calling. Rescue me, please. I can still see that awful leak of terror in her eyes. And I had to leave her to die. Within 20 minutes... Flames were leaping 40 feet above the cutting. It took five hours before fire engines from Gloucester, Bristol and Stroud managed to get the flames under control. But it was much later before anyone could face the grisly task of recovering the bodies. An envelope discovered bore the address of Clare Street, Bristol, and man's partly burned sock had the name E.S.S. Saunders. A passenger on the train reported missing is Miss Millicent S. Radford, whose address is given as 168 Carlton Road, Gloucester. Mr. H. Salmon of 22 Pleasant Road, Rotherham, a foreman plate layer on the LMS, who was a passenger in the coach which was telescoped into a vertical position against the bridge and had to drop 14 feet to the ground to make his escape, described the whole event like being in hell itself. The History of North America podcast is a sweeping historical saga of the United States, Canada, and Mexico from their deep origins to our present epoch. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this exciting, fascinating, epic journey through time, focusing on the compelling, wonderful, and tragic stories of North America's inhabitants, heroes, villains, leaders, environment, and geography. This incredible historical adventure follows a path of exciting events led by interesting people who reach beyond their grasp to touch key moments in time. 
the History of North America podcast series is an educational and entertaining look at the thrilling chronicle of North America, an action-packed tale of a continent that is still unfolding. I invite you to come along for the ride. If you guys want to get in touch with me, it's very, very easy. You can find me on Twitter or Facebook by using at BacktrackerUK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or you can email me direct at info at backtracker.co.uk. And that is exactly what Michelle Gersh did. She listened to the Armistice Day special and said... I loved the poignancy and immediacy of the letters, especially as they were so excellently read. Well done. Now, there's absolutely no way I can take the credit for that because that is down to the brilliant people who volunteer to do the readings for me. At the inquest on the 17th of October in the Railway Hotel, the doctor made a statement that he believed that death was most likely caused before the flames reached the body on the 14 victims of the Charfield disaster. Only eight bodies were definitely identified. The relatives of several missing passengers faced the ordeal of viewing the gruesome collection of human remains in the stable adjoining the hotel. But identification was near impossible, for the most part in some cases done only by rings, watches, cigarette cases and, in one case, a piece of distinctive shirt. The driver, Aldington, explained to the coroner that it was foggy in patches as he approached Charfield and that he expected the fogman to be out. Want, his co-driver, supported this view. Want also exclaimed that he saw the distant signal at Green and had said to the driver, right away, mate. But the signalman, Button, records on timing, showed that the distant signal had been read for danger that no fogman had been required as he had been able to see the regulation distance. After the initial crash, when Aldington, the driver, came to his senses, he found himself pinned down by wreckage, but managed to get clear. There was a lot of steam hissing. I called out to my mate, but he was not there. The express was a roaring furnace within a few minutes. The inquest was continued on October 31st, and after an absence of two hours, the jury returned to say that they were satisfied that the signalman button was not at fault, and that his signals and apparatus were in good working order. They were satisfied that in spite of conflicting evidence about the fog, it was not necessary to call out the fog signalman, and they unanimously agreed that the collision was caused by the negligence of the driver, Aldington, in passing the signals when at danger. Aldington was then committed to trial for manslaughter, and he appeared at the Gloucester Assizes, but... The case did not proceed, and he was discharged. The remains which could not formally be identified were buried in a common grave in Charfield. Included amongst those were the charred remains of two children, one aged about five and the other between 12 and 17. In spite of nationwide publicity, no one ever claimed the remains, and they were buried there too simply called Two Unknowns. From 1929 to the 1950s, a mysterious woman in black was a regular visitor to the grave of the Two Unknown. Someone who saw this woman was a former German prisoner of war, Joe Klober, 
who was reluctant to talk about her. The poor lady is at rest now, I suppose. If I bring it up again, all I can tell you is that she was frail, always dressed in black, and came to the grave two or three times a year. The last time I saw her was sometime in the 1950s. She always arrived in a chauffeur-driven limousine. The car was not black, but I cannot remember what colour. She would put flowers on the grave and pray there. As far as I know, no one ever spoke to her. She was elderly-looking all those years ago, so I imagine she is dead now. The real mystery surrounds the identity of the children, and there are theories ranging from them being related to royalty, or illegitimate royalty, to the idea that they were two rough sleeping kids who had the unfortunate luck of being buried in the wreckage. The most outlandish theory was that they were actually two ventriloquist dummies. Another suggestion is that they were two particularly small jockeys. But what did come up in the third inquest specifically for these two bodies, was that their remains were found with a child's blazer and a school badge. There was a shoe that was nine inches long, which is a fair size for a boy of 12, and a porter at Gloucester said that he had taken tickets from two children who were travelling together. But a lot of uncertainties surfaced during this third inquest. Were they indeed children? or shrunken adult remains. Why hasn't anyone claimed them? Surely someone must be missing them. Did the children even exist? The mystery of the two unclaimed children was resurrected in 1937, when a young woman from London claimed the bodies were those of her two young brothers. Now this happened eight years after the crash, and her name was Alice May Desborough, and she was interviewed after being found not guilty of sending malicious letters to Sir Frederick Menzies, the then Chief Medical Officer, threatening to kill herself and her daughter. The 26-year-old told a reporter, My father and mother and two children were killed. And my baby brother and I were saved. I remember nothing about the accident except how I walked distractedly up and down the embankment as the wooden coaches blazed through the night. When she was found that fateful night, a locket she wore contained a photograph similar to one found in a suitcase with the label Desborough, and the two children were sent to hospital under that name. None of the identified victims were named Desborough. in the day facts we're going all the way back to 1888 the 21st of november when three people perished when a schooner laden with more than 300 barrels of petroleum spirit exploded in bathurst basin on the 22nd of november in 1718 english pirate edward teach known as blackbeard was killed by the British Navy off the coast of North Carolina. Also on the 22nd of November, but in 1997, Australian rock singer Michael Hutchins passed away. On the 23rd of November, 
1963, the first episode of the BBC series Doctor Who was screened, with William Hartnell as the Doctor. On the 24th of November 1940, around 200 people were killed and another 689 injured in the first major air raid on the city of Bristol during the Second World War. Churches, as well as cinemas, theatres, schools, homes and shops, were destroyed or badly damaged. And lastly, on the 26th of November in 1922, English Egyptologist Howard Carter saw the first glimpses of the inside of the tomb of Tutankhamun. Breaking news. Boffins have just discovered which is fastest, hot or cold. And the answer is hot, because you can catch a cold. I hope you enjoyed today's show. And a huge thank you once again goes out to all those who helped bring the story alive. They included Steve Shepherd, Catherine Ayres, Henry Arnold, Marcus KP and Emma Cleave from Bradley Stoke Radio, as well as Joe Wilson and Adam Price from St Stephen's Drama Group. You have been listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. Now, this podcast has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. If you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. If you didn't, well, let's just leave it at that, shall we? I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me via Twitter or Facebook using at UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or, alternatively, you can email me at info at backtracker.co.uk By the way, the tune in the background? That's by The Model Folk. You can find out more about them at themodelfolk.com So thank you so much for listening. And until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. <laughs>